Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. I'm Simon Hill, qualified physiotherapist and currently finishing my master's in nutrition, creator of plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram. And I'm also the host of this show. You get to listen to me chat with inspiring guests so that together you and I can become more informed about the decisions we make in our lives and overall become more conscious humans. I was particularly excited for today's episode with Clint Patterson, founder of the Patterson Program for Rheumatoid Arthritis. Clint is a successful businessman, comedian, and science guru who reversed his rheumatoid arthritis and has dedicated his life to helping others with arthritic conditions. To paint the picture, friends, rheumatoid arthritis affects approximately 1% of the population, women more so than men, and is more prevalent in Western populations than developing countries, which is really interesting. And when Clint and I discuss some of the lifestyle factors that may contribute to the development of rheumatoid arthritis, this makes more sense. Whilst genetics can predispose someone to rheumatoid arthritis, load the gun so to speak, like other chronic illnesses that various doctors have spoken about in previous episodes on this show, lifestyle pulls the trigger. Like type 1 diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, multiple sclerosis, lupus, etc., Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disease whereby the body starts to attack itself, specifically mistaking foreign microbes for tissues in the joints, resulting in joint swelling and pain. Typically, patients diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis are told they will be on medications for their entire life, that there is no cure, and that they will experience a gradual decline in overall mobility. Unsurprisingly, the role of diet and autoimmune diseases, for various reasons, has not been taken seriously, which Clinton and I discuss in this conversation. But just like type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, there is hope. And the greatest thing of all, there are lifestyle changes, particularly dietary changes, that people with rheumatoid arthritis can make. Changes that are in their own control, that can significantly improve their quality of life. Before we hear from Clint, a couple of short messages. Thank you to everyone for sharing the episodes on social media. I really cannot believe how far and wide they are being spread. The number of listens per week is mind-blowing and really a sign that there are so many people out there who do want to take control of their health and live more consciously. So thank you very much. It's something that I certainly do not take for granted. I have a few surprises in the coming months. I'll be traveling across the USA and recording around 15, maybe 20 episodes with some absolutely brilliant minds. And I cannot wait to connect with them, but more importantly, to be able to share the conversations that we have so you too can benefit from their words of wisdom and advice. This week, I heard the show was shortlisted for the popular vote in the Australian podcast awards so thank you to everyone who out there who voted it means a lot this show by no means is about being number one that's never been my goal my goal is just to reach as many people as i can who are open to challenging their belief systems 
just as I was when I embarked on this journey. Okay, let's do this. Time to hear from Clint Patterson. Team, I'll see you on the other side. All right, Clint Patterson, take two. (laughs) Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Oh, good on you, Simon. Looking forward to this. Mate, it's awesome to have you here to get to know you a bit better, learn more about your journey, what you're doing on a day-to-day basis with the Patterson program. Before we dive deep into things, do you want to give a a top-line introduction to who you are and and what you do get up to on a day-to-day basis now? Yeah, well, besides looking after the kids like crazy because we've got three little ones and the eldest is four, um, my wife and I have developed uh, one of the most popular programs uh, around the world for helping people with rheumatoid arthritis and other inflammatory arthritic conditions. And uh, our driver behind this is that, that, that I was really, really suffering with that condition for many years. And then we went on a plant-based, very strict elimination process, was able to dramatically transform my health and found that this approach was very helpful to other people. So we've built it and built it, and now it's a uh, very uh, very successful and well-known program that people can follow all over the world. And we've had something like, well, one stat that I like to say is we've responded to over 55,000 emails Gosh. to people with inflammatory arthritis over the last seven years. That's huge. So our correspondence with the community at large is massive. That must yeah. feel pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does feel really good um, and I'm always feeling there's more that we can do because whilst it's wonderful to get um, frequent responses to say, hey, I'm doing so much better and so forth, you know, I still think about the people who don't reply and don't say they've made enough progress or their progress is minimal and I think, oh, but I know that those people could make progress if they did this, this and this. So I'm always thinking of how can I get the results for everyone better and it's just an ongoing working progress yeah Yeah. so you mentioned inflammatory arthritis and perhaps at the start of this podcast it may may be good to just define what that encompasses is that rheumatoid arthritis is that also encompassing other inflammatory conditions yeah so my diagnosis was rheumatoid arthritis but uh, there they have you know close close brothers and sisters in psoriatic arthritis ankylosing spondylitis and fibromyalgia and things like this where the body's attacking itself. So you've got a body in a state of confusion. And uh, medical science tells us that uh, it's an incurable disease. Um, They don't know what causes it. And that uh, what they do know is that it's on the rise and worldwide autoimmune conditions are something that are becoming more prevalent. They're very, very debilitating. So what's happening is that in the case of rheumatoid arthritis, you've got your body attacking the synovial tissue around the joint and the cartilage and the, the, the uh, supportive tissue can all become inflamed as well. And what can happen, like happened with my left knee, is that it blows up with a huge amount of swelling, the cartilage gets deteriorated and you can end up with a bone-on-bone situation in any of the joints in your body. And is that a, a relatively insidious onset over you know a long period of time or is that an acute thing that you someone could wake up with potentially the next day i've heard of all varieties i've heard of people waking up and they're basically feeling like their entire body feels crippled and then there was more commonly the more common cases like mine where it starts in a couple of joints and then it starts to spread and then after a few weeks or a month or two it's pretty bad and you're 
desperate to see a it's still pretty quick though right like a few oh, weeks yeah. a few months oh yeah because what's happening is the body is mistaking a certain combination of amino acids a protein right it's mistaking that protein as the enemy and therefore it starts attacking it and what it happens is that once it finds it in your say the tissues of your fingers it says hey i've also found it in the in the metatarsals of your feet hey i've also found it in the in the elbow joint because it's the same proteins but just in different locations the body just keeps uncovering these proteins and just finding them everywhere and it is just that spreads. is that molecular mimicry is that correct what they call that which is correct. i guess similar to type 1 diabetes and, and the exactly. attack of the beta cells it's exactly the same principle it's just a different target in the body okay mm. and these different forms of arthritis what is the the prevalence of these in, in Australia or in Western populations or even just around the world? Yeah, so the worldwide stat is around 1% to 2%, which you think about as a huge number. Like in Australia, if you think about that, right, 1% to 2% of the Australian population, it's actually everyone in the city of Canberra and Queanbeyan combined, every person, right? And there's a lot of people there. So that's 1% to 2% of the Australian population. So we're talking about, you know, a significant number of people and the cost to the government and the, therefore the public is enormous because the drugs that are being pushed more and more for these diseases are what are called biologic drugs. And they are anywhere from twenty dollars to $50,000 per person per year, twenty dollars to $50,000 per year per person. And is it okay? assumed as well that those are, those are drugs that people will take for a long period of For their life. Long. So it's a very profitable industry for, for pharmaceutical companies. Just for example, the latest stat that I have, because I haven't done my stats on this in the last 12 months, uh, but last year Humira did eight times more revenue in one year than the cumulative total box office takings that Avatar has done ever. Huh. <laughs> okay, just to give you an example. So Humira is the biggest selling drug in the world. Uh, it's for autoimmune diseases and and very much so for rheumatoid arthritis. And think about we're only talking about 1% or 2% of the population for rheumatoid arthritis. If we look at autoimmune diseases as a collective, I'm not sure of the stat, but we might be into the high single digits yeah, for sure. a world population, right? So compared to, say, you know, heart disease or cancer or, or, or things like this, we're seeing a very high profit margin there for, for these uh, companies. So yeah, huge amount of money in, in this disease if you're in the pharmaceutical business. Yeah, and I mean, but to that point, I guess, about you know, cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, probably would you say it's fair to say that they, they get a little bit more airtime in terms oh, yeah. of understanding the disease and, and how lifestyle affects not only you know, the occurrence of the disease but also the ability to manage and prevent it? Most definitely. From a patient's viewpoint, People with these autoimmune diseases tend to remain quiet about them as well. It tends to be the sort of condition where if you're suffering, you don't really get the pink balloons and the party to support you and the encouragement and get the community to meet other cancer survivors to, to provide a parallel example with, say, cancer. Instead, you're you know, up late at night quietly on the internet and just privately trying to work out what can you do and your meetings with the uh, specialists are always very sombre and concerning and the future is painted at very, very serious and the drugs are the only way to go. And, yes, it's, it's definitely a different feeling, these autoimmune diseases. There's a very deep heaviness around Sounds quite them. lonely. Yes, lonely, heavy and... Um, 
And a feeling of hopelessness, I think, exists because there's, there's such a serious condition, but without the death sentence, right? So it's this, it's, yeah, it's a very, it's a very dark mental place that you can get into when you have these conditions and they're not well controlled. Yeah. And is it something that is yeah, just as prevalent in, in men as it is in females or is it, is it higher in one gender than the other? That's an interesting question because it's actually two to one in females. So there are, you know, significantly more females affected by uh, inflammatory arthritis. There's some theories around this as to why that is the case. And I have my theories that aren't scientifically based. But uh, uh, so the, the scientific ones are quite varied and they're all just speculation, hypotheses, right? There's no, there's no one knows why. But one is that the, you know, the bacterial imbalance that exists when you develop the autoimmune disease is closely linked to hormonal imbalances. And so we know that, you know, that the hormonal cycles, particularly through a pregnancy cycle for females, is dramatic, right? It's precipitous drop in hormone levels as they, after giving birth. And so there is a, there is a high frequency of onset of rheumatoid arthritis after childbirth. And so there's one one link there that, that could, be at, could be at play. There's another link around UTIs, which women get, you know, a lot more than men. And there's a study published about the possible link between frequent UTIs and rheumatoid arthritis. And, well, and I think both of those are valid. Both of these speculations are valid. But there's also at play, I think, something to do more closely with the area that I am fascinated with, which is the gut, right? And from having a few girlfriends over the years uh, before meeting my wife, I noticed that they were, some of them took non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs every month for painful cycles. So this would be several a day, every single month since they hit puberty. Now, these things are known to cause leaky gut and to set ourselves up for the molecular mimicry that you mentioned mm. before. And so whilst the scale of the use of these is small month to month, potentially over a lifetime, because we're talking about common onset of disease mid-50s, right? So if you're doing that every month for decades, uh, there's going to be some gut damage, no doubt. Yeah, for sure. Mm. And I know you have you have an acronym, right, which we'll probably touch on later to yeah. sort of help explain some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's let's sort of dive, I guess, now into your story. Were you were you born and raised in in Australia? Yeah, I'm a total farmer upbringing. You know, my parents are on the farm; they're still there now. Dad's the diehard. I will not give up um, and let you know stop working. Where's the do- farm? Out past Dubbo, right? In the middle of New South Wales. I've driven through there a few times. <laughs> wagga Wagga Dubbo, just coming up between Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, went around near Dubbo, a little little country town near us is called Peak Hill and I went to school in Peak Hill from kindergarten right through year 12. And so in year 12 there were only 15 kids in our whole year. Okay, these days year 12 is even struggling. I don't know how many they have but a single digit, right, I think. So a little tiny town on a farm, 18, uh, 18 miles out of town, so 30 k's out of town, and um, very, very rural upbringing. So I learned how to drive a car before I could, you know, ride a bike. I'd sit on Dad's lap and drive the car, that whole thing, yeah? And the philosophy in the house was eat the meat. You know, we've got to get the meat into the boy. You've got to make him big and strong. It'll put air on your chest. Meat and, is protein. Yeah, 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 that whole thing. So my dad genuinely was the kind of, 
you know, bacon and eggs for breakfast. Steak for lunch was a big, strong, heavy meal for us all to enjoy and feel proud because we didn't have to buy it from the shop. We got it from out the farm, you know what I mean? We're self-providing and this feeling of pride associated with that. Uh, my dad, he, he now tells me because things have turned, turned for a, a big corner for my family and the way that they eat after they saw all the madness that I went through. My dad tells me that he was motivated to, and thought it was the right thing for the family. Not yeah, be, for sure. Not just because he was on a farm but because he'd read one book about dietary stuff and it suggested that it was really good to get lots of protein. Mm. No. I mean, that's probably one book more than a lot of parents that in, at that time were reading right about that's nutrition. It. <laughs> that's it. So to his credit, he read a book. <laughs> <laughs> he, he reckons he's only read a couple of books. So like, yeah, he, he, definitely, uh, he definitely read that one. Um, and, yeah, so we grew up like that, especially if there was a sports carnival or something. Dad would say, okay, big breakfast and we might even – you know, add some baked beans, but but mostly meat based meals for for everything, and um, and that's how I grew up on the farm, and and believing that we needed to have meat to be strong and healthy, and and adding to that, I've always been very lean. I've had a lean frame right from when I was born, right. So I've got a a, a thin kind of um, body, and I'd always wanted to take in this advice from my dad because I I wanted to try and gain muscle, and I was always thinking that. Well, that's the way to do it. So eventually when it came much later in life and then the disease hit, the biggest challenge for me was the potential weight loss of losing the meat. It wasn't anything else associated with socialising or having hard-to-find meals or um, anything like that. It was, but I'm going to be so skinny, and that was a, a real hurdle for me. Which is probably, overcome. you know, well, not probably, it is a common fear of a lot of men who – look at changing their diet and incorporating, you know, more plants into what they're eating. Yeah, well, it hasn't affected you, mate. Look at you. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was certainly, you know, that was probably, that was, you know, one of my main fears as well yeah. uh, when I started to transition too. Was there a period of time when you transitioned where your weight went down sure. before it came back? Yeah. yeah. So like initially it, it did, it went down, which I, you know, I have hypothesized that that's probably a combination of things like inflammation, but also understanding the difference in calorie density between yeah. the meals that I was having to all of a sudden these the plant-based meals, I just needed to eat more. And I was no doubt not consuming enough calories. And once I sort of got my head around where do calories sit in, in plant-based foods, mm. that became a lot easier to manage and the weight you know, went back on. Yeah, yeah. I find for me that unless I have some degree of high-fat foods in my diet, and particularly nuts is where I go, unless I snack on some nuts each day, then I find it hard to maintain my weight, especially since I do Bikram yoga every couple of days and it's like a 1,000 yeah. calories <laughs> yeah, per yeah, session. Yeah, yeah, well. And it just, like, it's just like going on a massive run. Now, if you've got to refuel if you're doing a level of exercise that that's intense. Yeah. So. But I think it's a good problem to have that, you know, to eat in a way which naturally is slimming. You know, if we look at most the, the mm. population studies show that yeah. vegans have much healthier BMIs than omnivores and I guess for, for a lot of disease avoidance, that's a great thing. And you, like you said, you've still got the option of having some high-fat foods and being able to maintain or put on some weight if you want to. Yeah, I agree. You know, all the studies like on rice, uh, rice, mice, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, because you can't run this study on humans, of course, but yeah, less than adequate, as you said, daily intake of calories always results in longer lifetime for the, for the rodents. So, yeah, look, 
it, it is, it, it's, I like the way you're looking at it. Like it's good to have a, a way of eating that keeps you slim. And then if you want to work, put effort in to build yourself up, then the results can be there. So I think that's way better than being on a diet that naturally makes you obese and puts you in a risk of really serious disease. And then you kind of have to find a miracle to get yourself out of that situation because exercise won't do it when you keep fueling yourself the wrong way. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> so as a, as a kid, you, you had this sort of naturally, you know, slim build, you were eating a lot of animal products. Mm. What was your, what was your health like? Were you, were you a healthy kid going into your teenage years and early twenties? I think so. Yeah, I think that our young bodies are very robust. And my personal views on this is that the human body can withstand so much that we throw at it. It's incredible what the body can can withstand. This is why people say, yeah, but like my auntie, she lived to 95 and she smoked every day and ate meat for breakfast every day. Yes, she achieved that because the human body is extraordinary. Statistically, if everyone lives like your grandmother or aunt, would they have the same outcome? Absolutely not. But she's a statistical outlier and it gives the example what the human body can do. So just eating the way that I ate, which wasn't appalling, by the way, we still had vegetables and we still, you know, ate, didn't, I didn't have a lot of junk food and stuff. So it wasn't appalling, but, um, um, yeah, I thought myself to be very healthy and it all went downhill. And the, the, the biggest mistake I made in my life was that I had a lot of acne on my face. It was across here and it was across my forehead and uh, I was really upset by it because as especially as a young teenage boy who was, you know, wanting to try and attract a, a girlfriend or at least seem attractive, I think through those formative years of 15, 16, 17, we're really susceptible if we've got something that really looks, you know, unattractive. And I tried the, the creams and things and nothing would work for me. And then my dad, after watching me struggle with this for at least a year, if not two, then told me this. He said, when I was young and I had acne like this as well, I went on antibiotics for several years and it helped me get rid of it. And I said, well, I want to do that, right? He said, yeah, it works for me. Now, I went to the doctor. They were very more than happy to give me a prescription of antibiotics and it cleared it up. It cleared up in like three weeks. It was all gone, completely gone. I was, Do you remember what so, kind of antibiotics that was? Yeah, that was doxycycline. Yeah, doxycycline, low dose. Now, man, right, so I took took that. What age were you then? I think I was 16. Okay. Mm. Took that for five consecutive years. Wow. Five years. It's a long time, right? It's terribly long time, right? Was there any side effects at that time in terms of how that, that drug was making you feel? None that I was aware of. I was told to keep out of the sun, which was the only warning I got. Not only take this for a month or two because it's going to ruin your digestive system and one day you'll have some disastrous disease. No warnings like that. Just keep out of the sun because it makes you more photosensitive, right? So I keep going back to different doctors because I moved out of the little town. I reached 18. I went to university. And then I, every time I would go and refill that prescription, I would end up seeing a different doctor because I didn't really have a primary care physician as, as people like to get. I just went and saw whatever medical center doctor was first available and said, I'm on these antibiotics for acne. I just need a prescription. And they're like, no worries. And, and was the, ac- the acne was, had, had gone? Gone. But you were just doing it as preventative. So yeah. Like, I don't want this to come back. Exactly. Okay. For, out of fear of what might happen if I stopped the drug. And I didn't realize that there was 
any potential side effect. I mean, I so naive, right? But I didn't think that there was anything at all risky about doing this. So that no doctors sort of said, hey, mate, you've been taking this for three years now. Maybe take a breather and see if your skin is even in you know the same stage as it was previously. I don't even recall them asking me how long I'd been on it. Yeah. So I just said I need this prescription filled and they're like, no worries, boom, bang, Medicare, bulk bill, done. Yeah. Wow. So I just kept taking them. And I mean, um, I'm interested when, when we get onto the Patterson program and you, your case studies and people that you're working with, if that's a common commonality mm-hmm. among their history. Yeah. Yeah. Let's make sure we talk about that. So, yeah. So what happened is uh, I noticed that when I would at, uh, throughout those years, particularly, I remember this mostly at university. I don't remember so much how my, my body reacted to foods and stuff when I was at home, when I was a teenager, but I remember it more at university where I was challenging my body more because it was late nights, partying, drinking lots of alcohol and just basically testing the system, you know, basically being in the, in the loop socially. So every beer I would drink, my nose would, my nose would become congested. Wow. This was the first sort of link I, I noticed towards any kind of reaction with things that I was doing. Ice cream, instantly couldn't breathe. After, couldn't, after swallowing the ice cream, couldn't get air through my nose. Same reaction to the, um, to the beer and kept eating ice cream, kept drinking beer, thinking, well, something not quite right there, but this is what you do. You breathe, know. Through the, breathe through, breathe your, through mouth. your mouth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds so stupid. So like now with the way that I test foods and I encourage people to be so analytical with how they reintroduce foods and everything, for me to be just so naive and so hopeless in this area, you know, my personal views on food now are just so radically different. It's remarkable. In fact, there was a friend of mine, his name's Justin, is a friend of mine, and one day we went to the supermarket and he bought some of those mung bean sprouts you know, mung beans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I looked at him and I'm like, you're not, you're not going to buy mung. What are they? I didn't know what they were. I'd never seen them before. He's like, mung bean sprouts, man, they taste delicious, blah, blah, blah. And I called over my mates. I said, boys, come over here. And I absolutely trashed and ridiculed him. I'm like, <laughs> we're all laughing. Like, what the F are you eating, Has Like, that's crazy because we'd never seen that kind of food before. So, um, yeah, and he bought it and he ate it. He couldn't care less. Like, he, that's the type of guy he is. Um, and, and I remember, just remember that moment because of how incredulous that purchase was to me, buying mung bean sprouts, which I'd never seen. It was hilarious. That was when you were at university. Yeah, right? at university. Yeah. Jeez, boy, he was ahead of his time, wasn't he? He was ahead of his time, <laughs> all right. Mung bean sprouts, man. I know to this day, like, who do you know that, like, isn't plant-based who goes and buys mung bean sprouts and first thing in the shopping cart. So I was eating lots of two-minute noodles and crappy stuff to get me through uh, late nights at university and drinking and stuff. So, you know, yeah, it was and, – and throughout that time, nose would block – but but otherwise felt okay. Otherwise felt okay, yeah. And what were you studying at university? It's called optoelectronics. And so it's laser physics and optical fibres. Okay. So the direction that graduates took from my degree went into um, building the internet, basically. So, wow. yeah, okay. my, so, our components that I was in charge of having shipped out of our factory are now 
under the sea in the uh, well, yeah, thousands is fair in the thousands helping ultimately this podcast to reach other parts of the world. Yeah, so wow. that's pretty cool. Well, thanks for your work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So where, where, what university was that at? Macquarie. Macquarie. And what was it like coming from, it was Peak Hill, right? Yeah. From Peak Hill going to university. The was, best. Yeah. The greatest. Yeah. Like a dog when you take the chain off and it starts bolting. Like finally now there's some madness and excitement because whilst I had a really pleasant and I enjoyed my upbringing, this was now like suddenly, you know, welcome to like madness and fun. And I met friends immediately that I've connected with. One of them was Hass, who I mentioned before, uh, Frank and Justin, all these other guys that I met straight away. And it felt like I was part of this wonderful friendship, wonderful community immediately. And yeah, those guys uh, that I spring to mind that I think that I met the very first day are now really close friends. Yeah, and so we had such a close bond and friendship throughout those years. Definitely some of the most amazing years of my life. Yeah. Did you go to uni? Yeah, I did. Yeah, where'd you go? I went to uni down at La Trobe University in Melbourne. I did physiotherapy, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, I know Latrobe. Yeah. Yeah, my mate and I, uh, Joel, we went and actually uh, have done comedy at Latrobe University. Yeah, we haven't, yeah, we haven't spoken up. about your, uh, your No, we haven't got to that yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'll come out. That'll come out in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I um, I was at the Doctors for Nutrition conference. <gasps> yep. And you were an MC mm-hmm. and you told a story about an award. Was it an award that you won? In Peak Hill. In Peak Hill. Yeah. Maybe you should share that. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> you talk about like getting some big achievements in life. So uh, my uh, my little country town actually wrote an article about me in the Peak Hill Times newspaper and it only comes out every two weeks because it's, it's you know, there's only 900 people in Peak Hill. And they wrote an article about me and, the, and it said, Clint Patterson, one of the most successful people to ever come out of Peak Hill. And I thought maybe because I've paid off my car. <laughs> And I've never been to jail, so uh, they've erected a statue of me just on the outskirts of town. Um, <laughs> it's just a pole um, with my name on it in graffiti. So, uh, yeah, that's a little bit of background there. And they've asked me to come out there in a couple of months to do a comedy night and uh, put on a show there, which will be fun because we're going to raise money for the local cop uh, so he can buy a taser because he said some Saturday nights out here, I just want to bloody zap myself. So <laughs> now he'll be able to, which is cool. So, yeah, that's a little bit of stories around uh, around the little country town. <laughs> there we go. Ladies and gentlemen, Peak Hill, if you're, if you're visiting Australia, make sure you check it out and Clint statue. Okay, so from from university to being diagnosed with yeah. rheumatoid arthritis, how did mm. how did things play out? What was your journey like during that period? And talk us through the the diagnosis and the onset of symptoms. Yeah, so let me throw in some stuff in case someone's or there's people listening to this have heard my story before and just you know, I think we like having a bit of a laugh and and flavoring this up a bit more. So I'd bought a speed. Da- so first of all, our company got absolutely shut down. So in 2000, the year 2000, the tech boom, so we're talking the NASDAQ stock market in the US, which handles the technology stocks. Our stock price prior to the collapse was 135 US dollars a share. We'd all been given stock options in the company that were yet to be vested at $5 a share. Wow. Okay. I, I had a million US dollars on paper at the age of 25, right? 
and it was a crazy time. I'd cashed in 1% of those stock options and bought a new car with cash, a brand new Mazda MX-5. I was driving that thing around, but then everything collapsed and we lost a lot. So all that money I hadn't gone to zero. Okay. All I had was my car and I got a $50,000 tax-free redundancy package. And with that, I thought, well, I'm not going to work again. I'm done. Right. This is, this is still me and my, you know, Mid twenties, it'll uh, last forever. Yeah, it lasts forever. Cash, yeah. Uh, no thought of disease or anything like that. And so I did. Com- started doing comedy, and uh, and and a couple of years of doing that, but I just wasn't making enough money, and I felt my brain dying. Like you know, I was solving some significantly difficult problems and stuff at work. You know, we're talking about imprinting patterns on optical fiber with a laser. Highly technical. Uh, highly technical, and I had. 100 staff working for me. I mean, at a young age, I had a lot going on. Suddenly, I wake up with nothing to do and I've got one gig that week and it pays 100 bucks. That was and I, The transition was massive, right? A whole year went by, just 100 bucks a week, 100 bucks a week, one gig, nothing. How were you from a mental state at that time of your life? Oh, just driven to try and find a way to kind of improve my my comedy career to try and get more gigs you know get more gigs was kind of the mantra me and all my comedy how do you practice comedy is it in front of the mirror like how, how do you how do you come up with your content uh so everyone's different and you ask 10 10 people get 10 different totally different answers right so for example before i tell you how i do it like my friend i'm really good close friends with arch barker right the american yeah, comedian. yeah, yeah, yeah. i've seen him actually yeah so the way it'll work with him is, is you know, we'll just be in a conversation or he'll notice something and he'll just pull out a little black book and he'll write down a note and then later when he's by himself, often just prior to a gig when he's just chilling out backstage, he'll then expand that into something more structurally sound because there is a structure behind all jokes even if the structure's indetectable to anyone else. But ultimately that structure is as simple as create a surprise at the end, right? There's something different than you expected. That's all That's all the joke is, right? And But for me, I will also make a note about something I observe or something I say that gets a laugh and write it down. But then later I will actually, you know, well, haven't for a while with the kids, but what I used to do frequently is just sit down and dedicate some time and actually try and build either an idea that I come up with into a routine or actually just try and come up with stuff on the spot at my desk, um, which I used to be able to do better, uh, but that is there's a muscle involved in doing that, that that's become a bit weak. Um, so, yeah, I haven't come up with a lot of new stuff recently because of our business, which is just, you know, taking up a lot more of our time and I feel more worthwhile in my life, um, but also three young kids. That'll, that'll suck your time as well. But anyway, so I was trying to get more into in comedy and then, and then I bought a, a speed dating business. Okay, so I, I uh, geez, you've done some interesting things. You were crazy, at uni buddy, building the internet. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've been involved in the in the stock collapse, and yeah. and, and now you're you've, you've bought a speed dating. <laughs> I did. I paid seventy thousand dollars plus GST for a speed dating business. I ran the math, and I thought, look, it's doing this much per month, and blah blah blah. And it was just running in Sydney and Brisbane. Did you actively take advantage of, of the services? Did you, did you get involved? From time to time, there was some interest here and there, but uh, it wasn't the kind of indulgence that I think that a lot of people would imagine. So 
Uh, yeah, and I bought that and I aggressively grew that business. So we then ended up in all the major cities around Australia and I would fly in and host the first night and try and teach the people. Anyway, the purpose of telling you this is that it then became actually uh, really overwhelming. I was doing all of it by myself and it, like, basically where I'm going with this is it became very stressful trying to run these speed dating events because there's a deadline every day of the week. You've got to have 10 guys and 10 girls or the event doesn't work. And so I'm trying to fill these events, deadline, deadline, deadline every day. And we know what a deadline does. It, it, it causes anxiety. And so it was that. And then I took three weeks off of running that and doing stand-up to go and entertain the troops in Iraq. All right. So when I went over to the Middle East and we went through Qatar and Iraq and uh, the UAE and these, these countries, we had to take doxycycline as malaria prevention. And we also had to take injections of meningococcal and all these different immunizations before we went as part of the military, you know, right? And so the immune system is like a fence separating you and, the, and and your neighbor. And if it keeps getting hit and hit and hit, that fence becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. And so I'd hit that fence many years in my teenage years with these antibiotics and mine was weak. And then I hit it again with more antibiotics, gets weaker and weaker. Then I hit it with the, the these uh, immunization shots and it weakens it even further. And then before I got back from Iraq, within two months, I developed rheumatoid arthritis. So I got the stress of the business um, then antibiotics for three months again because you got to do a month before the month we were there or it wasn't a month it was half a month we were there and then a month afterwards and the immunization shots and my body just went vroom inflammate and that's compulsory like you have to take that as yeah. a requirement yeah, yeah everyone in the camp not just the entertainers um in fact at one particular station, they were on the table like like cough mints that you, or like the the peppermints that you have at conferences. The the pills, mm. boom. The so malaria is pretty rife over there. Well, it's not because of the malaria prevention techniques that they they put in place. And I don't know the the details around this, but I think all that the antibiotics do is just delay the symptoms from showing up until you can get to actually get back home to Australia. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I don't quote me on that, but. It's not a prevention. It's a way of sort of, yeah. There's 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 some clever medical going on with those with those pills. Yeah, yeah. I know. I I think I took a course of those when I went to the Amazon in South America. Interesting. Yeah. Where'd you go? I went in via. Well, I went Peru and then into uh, the Amazon in Peru. Mm. Um, yeah, we did too. We did was, too. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to the Amazon in Peru as well. That's fantastic. Such a great experience. Yeah, yeah. Did you see the little cayennes, the little yeah. uh, little uh, sort of mini crocodile they, things? Yeah. Yeah. Not quite as dangerous, I don't think. No. <laughs> Fortunately. Yeah. Um, okay, so, and the tarantulas. I saw a tarantula. What? Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Cool. Mm. The diagnosis. So, you, can, mm. you come back from doing the comedy in the, at the war for the mm. troops. Mm. You're diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. The symptoms you said earlier sort of came on, you know, over a, what, a one or two month sort of period. Yeah. Yep. What were those symptoms like? Paint that picture in terms of where you were feeling pain. What was that pain like? How excruciating was it? How did it affect your your quality of life? When I got out of bed, I stood up and I thought, that's a weird pain in my feet. So it started in my feet. And 
it was a strange pain. Like if you've not had this condition, then you've never experienced the uniqueness of the feeling because it's not like you've stepped on a burr or a thorn or something. And it's not like you've run on bare feet through on concrete for a while and then your feet ache. It's a unique, different kind of feeling that caused a lot of curiosity in my mind. It's just a strange one. I kept putting weight into the front balls of my feet thinking, what is that pain? And then it would go away after a few hours and then return each morning. And then the same kind of thing happened with my fingers. And then and then where everything really accelerated for me. So I was in Brisbane doing gigs at the time. And then I went back to Sydney. And then so only a week or two after I had felt pain for the first time. I went back to Sydney and then my friends had started a touch football competition of which I used to be really good at touch football. And so I, they called me up and said, hey, can you come play for us? We're short of numbers. You know the whole story. Everyone's always short of numbers. So I say, sure, but I haven't played for a long time. And I thought, you know, it doesn't matter, right? I'm 30. I just turned 31. But you know how you always think that you can play football like you're 19? Mm. Yes. It's a big difference between 19 and oh. 31. Especially when you've just started to develop inflammation in your body and you haven't exercised in a long time. So I run out. It's hurting on my feet. I'm running out and it's hurting. I'm like, it's cool. It's cool. Like, I haven't done this in a while. Yeah. I haven't done this in a while. I want to play. I want to show that I've still got it, you know. I don't know if it was the first touch of the ball, but it may may be at the most second or third touch of the ball. I do a left foot step and everyone on the park hears like pop like that. There goes my ACL. Okay, so I'm writhing writhing in agony on the the ground in the middle of the field. Uh, We're five minutes into the game, right? And uh, and my uh, friend has to uh, drive me to the emergency room and um, I'm in the emergency room waiting for a couple of hours and then eventually uh, get sent home with a bunch of painkillers and told that when the inflammation all calms down, we have to have an MRI and all this sort of stuff. Never got to any of that, never got to surgery, never got nothing because the rheumatoid arthritis attacked that joint like it was on a mission because the damage and the lack of movement through that joint meant that it became the ideal target for inflammation. And that's later what my specialist rheumatologist explained to me is that when there's a damaged joint, the inflammation goes there more. And so that that's why my knee just got attacked and attacked and attacked and no surgeon would operate on it because it was too inflamed. We can't touch it. It's too risky for us as surgeons to touch. And them. it was during that process that they identified that you had rheumatoid arthritis yeah, yeah, because I, the inflammation wasn't going away and they were investigating. Or No, I think I went to the rheumatologist uh, limping terribly because of the ACL and inflammation and my fingers and hands and everything. Um, you know, I presented for the first time to the appointment way worse than I otherwise would because I also had this ACL tear and I'd been on crutches for weeks for that. You know, you can't walk with an ACL tear like that. Uh, And so, yeah, so then the diagnosis was there, very high inflammation. Um, I had uh, elevated rheumatoid factor, a blood test, anti-CCP antibodies were really high. So uh, defined as like aggressive, what's called seropositive or blood positive. Yeah, indication in the blood that you are, are the more are confirmed of from all angles of rheumatoid arthritis. And so we had the discussion around all the drugs and 
Um, they want to put you on to aggressive drugs early, and even 2018 scientific papers, you know, that I that I've been reading recently, confirm that today's treatment for these autoimmune diseases hit them as hard as you can, as quick as possible, because they have shown that long-term studies, long-term observation of of people, that their symptoms are better from a rheumatoid arthritis point of view if they go on massive amounts of drugs as quickly as possible. And that makes sense. I mean, there's no one... So it reduces the inflammation, stops the body from attacking itself really quickly. That's right. And so if if you're only looking at joint damage and only looking at inflammation, then yes, if you drop an enormous amount of medications on this, you're going to effectively reduce and, and prevent that. But what's the hidden part of this is that those drugs can be a nightmare, an absolute nightmare, the most dangerous of all drugs that are legally available. You know, we talked about Humira before, not to implicate it any different than any of the other medications, but they have warnings on their, on their marketing that says, you know, the infections that can result from having your immune system suppressed can be very dangerous and fatal. Is that methotrexate or is that a different drug? That's the drug that I went on methotrexate and it's a cancer drug a very low dose and it's a starting drug so there's a hierarchy of drugs and literally you have to graduate or fail drugs before you can then get to the the ones that cost the most because um, insurance companies in places like the united states they don't want to start you on a really expensive drug because they're out of pocket and in australia they don't want to start you on the really expensive drug because the government's out of pocket and they're covering for it so there's this hierarchy and methotrexate incidentally actually works really good for a lot of people and it did work pretty good for me and so it makes sense to also go on a drug that's way cheaper that's pretty effective and for a lot of people can keep you keep you in pretty good shape for a while yeah but i said no i said dog i want 12 months where i can work work out a solution because you know i'd come from solving problems every day back before i you know got into comedy and and the dating business which by the way i had to sell because i just couldn't run it because i was just i was on crutches i was you know the knee yeah sure yeah I, and so i i sold that business was very lucky to find a buyer no interest except one person and he bought it and i managed just to break even on the sale which also was lucky because it was—I was nearly just going to let it absolutely collapse, and then I, uh, yeah, I spent twelve months trying to see if I could get on top of this myself, and I just worsened terribly, terribly worsened. In and this was months. so with taking drugs or without taking drugs? before the drugs. I said I need twelve months. So twelve months drug-free. Yeah, your mindset was I'm I'm going to I'm going to get on top of this. Yeah, with with another strategy. Yeah, and um, and I I did some pretty good research in twelve months. What did you find? Well, I, f- I found that everyone wanted to talk supplements. That's what, it, that's what I found. Everyone, like I started, uh, what was the first thing that I took? It was um, cell food. Yeah, it's a product called cell food. And uh, strangely, no one asks me about that these days. Is it like an anti, some sort of anti-inflammatory? I think, it, no, no, it's some kind of hypercharged uptake of free radical elimination, something like that, you know, something like that. Anyway, so I started uh, that, and uh, and then uh, and then of course all of the classics like you, you know, you know, chondroitin and glycosamine sulfate, and the the ones that are advertised on TV. So and all the stuff that was advertised on TV, fish oil, exactly. Yeah. I was taking a lot of fish oil in that first twelve months, and couldn't digest it. 
so I would take the fish oil, even I would go, I, I was taking uh, like a lot. And then I thought, see, I can't digest this stuff. So I would eventually just, I got to a point where I was just trying to test one capsule at a time. And I would have these, what I call burp backs, regurgitation. And I would taste that fish oil for hours afterwards. And yet I persevered with that. Man, I went to one naturopath who was regarded as this awesome. Nat- in fact, the naturopath stories are crazy. One guy, I'll tell you about the other guy and sing. One guy had me lie down and had my feet in water and my head with a wet cloth over me and ran electrical currents through me. This isn't the 1800s. This is like 10 years ago, right? He's running electrical currents through me to try and kill the microbes that only exist at certain vibrational frequencies. And, man, I was forking out every week for that guy right and then i saw this other guy and he's like oh you know you've got to rebuild cartilage that you would have already left in your knee and you've got to buy this he sold me and i bought and tried to consume bovine throat cartilage so we're talking about a dead cow they've then extracted the throat from you know from down the cow and then crushed all that up into a liquid and put it in a bottle and and i tried to drink that and i don't know if i actually vomited or dry reached so bad and got the bottle which cost 180 dollars, and just tossed it in the bin thought that's impossible to drink it's so disgusting but this is the sort of stuff i was doing i went to moree because they had some hot um, mineral baths there and i bathed in there we went to fiji on a personal holiday and we sought out some mud springs that i could lie in so whatever it took whatever it took and I was going to massage all the time, my Chinese therapist. And was that helping, like symptom, symptomatic sort of relief? Yeah, you might. You know, massage feels good for everyone, right? Great massage is wonderful, but uh, when you're working against something that's so aggressive, and, and the word they use is progressive, it just works and gets worse and worse and worse. And so everyone's trying their best and doing good work. And whilst some of these supplements and techniques weren't really working, everyone's trying their best. And I was believing, I woke up every morning thinking that I was going to wake up feeling better. Like I was convinced, you know, we talk about, there's a lot of mind over matter kind of uh, belief systems that I've always had, right? And I couldn't believe that I wasn't getting better. It was just perplexing how it wasn't working. I thought, I'm doing everything that everyone's telling me what to do, except my wife who was telling me you need to give up the dairy and the meat and stuff like that. Wow. And so I, she was, so yeah, was that not her yet. own education or where was she coming to those sort of conclusions? Melissa's never eaten meat in her life. She was born into a vegetarian upbringing. Okay. And so she doesn't know what it tastes like. She's had fake meat, so she's got a pretty good idea. Um, but she's been vegetarian right up until we met and through the first few years there. When did you meet her? Um, Met her when I was in those years before speed dating but after when I was just doing comedy. And my friend who I met through theatre sports, he was trying to become a, a musician and so he needed some video clips filmed. And I started recruiting people I was meeting at nightclubs and saying, hey, man, you look like a cool guy. We're doing a video clip. Come come join us in this video clip, right? And uh, so we had the video clip and put the video clip together and I said to these guys, bring any girls you've got. We need girls, you know, girls, girls, girls. So this one guy called Wekesa, who is this big, handsome, gay, black, 
Englishmen, right? Six foot four, very like dressed in suits and scarves and stuff, right? He's a perfect for a video clip, yeah? Anyway, he shows up with these three American girls and uh, Melissa was one of those American girls and I was just smitten from the moment I saw her and I uh, stole her number off the talent release form and called her up and uh, I'll never forget where I call. I remember where I dialed Is, is that allowed? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not allowed, but there's a happy ending, right? I don't think she's going to sue me. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yes, and then I took it to a comedy night. Now, that was going back yeah, to 2000. To your own comedy night or someone else? Yeah, my own comedy night. It's like a cheat. Nice having that up the sleeve. It is. It. <laughs> it's, it's the cheat way out. And then you go uh, and you, you, you only do you only, only do material that you know works, take no risks, you know. Uh, so, yeah. The formula. The formula, Yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and so that was um, that was back then. But then she she was in the final month of her six months of is it sabbatical? Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that's the right yeah. word here in Australia. So four weeks later, she goes back to the states, and we lose contact, and we don't talk or stay in contact. Five years goes by, then randomly I just start calling her after I sell my business, and I've got these health challenges, and I'm like. I just want a holiday, right? So I was physically capable at that point to walk okay on my knee and we go to Peru and we do the Inca Trail together and uh, we fall in love. It's incredible, Inca Trail. Yeah, magical place, yeah. And so we have photographs of us standing in front of Machu Picchu and all that and we so, you know, and then she said, I don't want this to be the last time that I ever see you. And so I said, okay, and it was dawning on me, this this could be the, the serious relationship. And I had, we had to return to our countries. She went back to work. I continued to wrap up my, I basically start working on my health and stuff. And I was doing a lot more comedy at that point, like professionally. And then eventually she she moves to Australia. So yeah, that's how that's how it happened. It's yeah. interesting that you through your life you have you've had these influences you make with the mung beans. Yeah. Now your wife, who yeah. was a vegetarian, sort of <laughs> just. Opening up your eyes a little bit towards another way of, of eating. So th- when when your wife's suggesting, oh, Clint, maybe maybe you should look at the meat and the dairy in your diet, is that something that you sort of try, you you accepted and, and thought you'd play around with? Yeah, not accepted at first. Um, in fact, yeah, reluctant. At the in fact, I remember at the on that night that I took her on my first date. Before symptoms, before any of that, right? The first the first date we had, I took it. We went to an Indian restaurant on Oxford Street, okay? And I remember we're sitting across just like you and I like this, you know, and uh, and uh, and she, she says, um, she says, oh, I'm just going to, can, do, what are you going to eat? And I'm not, I'm not, maybe this, this, what about you? And she said, I'm going to eat a, a something vegetarian. I'm vegetarian. And I remember, so I'm like nodding. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, nice. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, no, <sighs> this is a disaster. I really remember thinking, oh, this is, this is really a big problem. <laughs> and I thought maybe it won't go that far between us for a second. Maybe seven. you should have done a two-minute speed date before that. <laughs> you might have worked Exactly. <laughs> Do the speed date and then over. <laughs> you know, I was that kind of concerned about having to, to yeah. lose these really ingrained parts of my life. But I did. And so, you know, to get back on the story, uh, I gave up those things. I can't say that it was fast that I felt better because I was on such a deteriorating path that it may or may not have slowed that down for a little while. But there were some subtleties that gave me massive breakthroughs. And one was 
that I had to eliminate oils. Oils are the worst of all. So we could look at dairy and, and meat, but if you if we bring someone in to our, to us right now, we sat them down with rheumatoid and we were allowed to experiment on them for a couple of weeks. If you want to light them up, you make them eat lots of uh, lots of oil. Put the give them hot chips, man. Uh, they won't be able to get out of the chair tomorrow. So that's directly is that affecting the inflammatory sort of pathway? Exactly, just straight through the omega six pathway. And when I say it's it's dramatic, I mean it's uh, it's un- it's incredibly incredibly deleterious when you get into these uh, oils when you when you've got that inflammation sensitivity. And so when I stopped putting olive oil, which isn't even one of the most inflammatory, right? Some people can tolerate some olive oil without having too much of a reaction. For my guys and people that I work with, absolutely no oils, right? But olive oil is, you know, not as catastrophic as, catastrophic as the sunflower oils and the other oils that end up in hot chips and fried food. So anyway, I stopped putting olive oil on my salad. Boom, massive breakthrough. Massive breakthrough. Another breakthrough was stop putting flax seeds in my smoothie, which even today I, I, I run into some small debates with some people about. Um, boom, another breakthrough. And so I realized, hey, it's the fat. I can't break down fat. I couldn't break down the fish oil, right, which is just fat. Mm. And I couldn't break down the oils in my, you know, there's a lot of inflammation there. And then I'm flax seeds and now I'm doing better with that. So I was making these connections. But then the biggest breakthrough was when I actually um, I ate a whole bunch of cherries without washing them and I had diarrhea and, and, and vomiting for 24 hours and after that I felt like absolutely perfect. And so I thought, was it because I'm purging or was it because I was empty? Fasting. Yeah, and so I fasted deliberately a, a, a few weeks later once I sort of felt a bit better and all the pain went away again. And that's when I looked at the science behind fasting and rheumatoid arthritis, which I'd never just tried to find. And there it was, 11, 14 people go on a, on a seven-week water fast. Everyone's symptoms have been eliminated. So that's removing these triggers in the diet. Yep. Yep. So were you left with thinking, okay, I can't fast for life. Yep. So how am I going to bring food back in to give me energy yes. isn't a trigger? Perfect. That's exactly what I thought. And, 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 and that was perplexing because everything I tried to eat, it gave me pain. Everything. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's frustrating. Yeah. And so I found that the, I, I basically at the time thought that I need to eat in a way that requires my body to do as little work as possible because it looks like my body is crap. Like I can't digest anything. I'm, my, my body's just shut down the digestion. And so it seemed to me that sprouting nuts and seeds so that they were pre-digested and then eating lots of fruits that were super easy to digest is probably going to be the way to go. And that's what I did. So I ate sprouted almonds, sprouted macadamias, sprouted pumpkin seeds, salad and fruit for eight months. Nothing else but that. Wow. Yeah. And, and what was the experience like? All sorts of different emotions. That's some serious commitment, by the way. Yeah. That's ridiculous, right? A long yeah. way from, from the boy from, from, the from Peak Hill yeah. on the farm. <laughs> so naturally, a lot of concern around the weight loss. When we're talking weight loss, I mean, mine was shocking. So I thought I was skinny before and this took me right down to 63 kilos. I'm 6'2", right? So I was really, really bony. And this is what worried my family the most. They were like, 
you know, having private conversations uh, behind the back that they've, you know, later became aware of, you know, they say, you know, Clint could end up in a wheelchair and like it's really, and it's all true, people do, right? So they were extremely worried, obviously. Very worried, yeah. And I was still on the medications. Now, I'd, I'd ended up on the methotrexate, as I said, I, was on, I ended up getting to maximum dose and the doctor was talking about what next? You know, we talked about the biologics, like that's where we were headed. Did, sorry to cut you off, but did your family or you have anyone else that you knew with rheumatoid arthritis nah. that you could talk to from an experience point of view or lean on for ideas? No. Nah. Nothing. <gasps> sorry, there was one person. Yep, there was. Sorry, I just remembered this. One time when I went to Brisbane, they called, they told me to go and visit this guy who they didn't even know themselves, but he was the husband of one of our second relatives or something. I mean, there's a very loose family connection. Yeah. Yeah. And it turns out that he had juvenile idiopathic arthritis when he was like 15, 16, and that he no longer had, had any symptoms now and he hadn't had symptoms as an adult and no one knew why and they said you should go and see this guy you know what's like when you're a little bit reluctant it's someone you don't know you're coming to them with a serious problem you just sort of don't want the whole Mm. the sort of the social context of it all is uncomfortable i didn't know these people and they lived not even in the town of brisbane i had to travel to get out to see them and stuff Anyway, I was in Brisbane for work and I thought, oh, God, mum and dad keep going on about this. So I'll go see him. I went and see him and in a nutshell what he explained was, yeah, he got these symptoms. They told him he would be in a wheelchair because he was, when I saw him, about 50. So when we rewind where these treatments were, uh, say, you know, what, 35 years ago, the treatments were nowhere near as advanced and as successful as what they are today. Yeah, sure, they're risky today, but but they get much better results. Anyway, he said he was told he'd be in a wheelchair because all they had at the time was drugs like uh, steroids, right? You'd go on steroids until basically your osteoporosis is shocking, put you in a wheelchair and that was it. And then instead of that, he just went to the beach and started swimming and became a surf lifesaver against his his physical abilities, he became a surf lifesaver and he surf lifesaved every day and trained with everyone else. And after a few years of being a surf lifesaver, as he got into his early 20s, it all went away. Wow. It's amazing, right? So there's something in... So did that give you some hope? It did. It definitely did. And he was the only person that I knew that had a story of, of positivity. And there was only a couple of books on the internet on Amazon that, that that people had shared their story about recoveries. One had reactive arthritis and then one had rheumatoid arthritis and I followed her approach and it was it just got worse. What's the difference between those two, reactive and... So reactive is what Daniel Johns, who's the lead singer Silver of Chair. Silverchair, had. And it's believed that it's reactive because of some kind of trigger and if you can eliminate that trigger, then you might be able to eliminate the condition. So has he eliminated that? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Um, I remember that it was very severe for him and I don't know whether what his situation is. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, but whilst there were different views on how to go about you know, the treatment in these books, both had diet in common. So I'm like, well, I've had this experience with the the fasting experience and I'm now I'm doing this raw food diet and the raw food diet after eight months 
I've been on the chimpanzee diet, right? That's what they eat, fruits and nuts and seeds. I, w- I had not reduced my medication, but I had reduced my inflammation a lot. Oh, so you'd started, you'd already started the medication. Oh yeah, I'd started the medication, but it never, it never put my symptoms at bay. Yeah, it just, I, 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 I reckon it dropped to thirty percent, but I stayed at that thirty percent level on more and more and more meds. I started at ten milligram. We went to twelve point five, fifteen, seventeen point five. Went up to twenty five. And I'm still sitting on this baseline inflammation that just wouldn't go away. But then eight months of raw food, all that inflammation had gone away on that level of medication. And then what I did is I read a book called The Enzyme Factor by Hiromi Shinya, who's a gastroenterologist, was the guy who invented a way of removing polyps without using surgery. Okay, so he's a very, very famous and highly regarded gastroenterologist, and he eats a plant-based diet. And he says that he eats the same meal every day. It's just buckwheat and quinoa and millet and some brown rice. Like that's all he eats all the time. Oh, and fruits, right? He eats fruits. And I'm like, if this guy is an expert in the bowel, and I know I'm trying to heal my bowel, and he looks at bowels every day, and one of his famous quotes is, I've never seen a colon from anyone that looks healthy who consumes dairy on a regular basis. He's never seen one. If you're eating dairy, colon, guaranteed, it doesn't look healthy, right? And I'm like, this guy's my man, right? So what I did is I just started eating like shinya, buckwheat, quinoa, and, and, and brown, I didn't eat the brown rice, buckwheat, quinoa, millet, amaranth, hated millet, had to set that aside. Got, so just brought it back to buckwheat, quinoa, amaranth, and it wasn't causing any inflammation to come back. And so then I'm, hallelujah, now I'm eating some cooked food. I started to put a couple of kilos back on. Then I was able to eat some, some rice, some sweet potatoes, and I started to have cooked food back in my diet. And life started to look good because I, I was now running low inflammation. My blood tests were good. And I was getting off this really, really hard raw food diet and looking a bit better. So people around you were... Feeling better as well, a bit, bit more encouraged. Yeah. What about your doctors? Were, were they were they looking at your results and and sort of going, wow, this is you know different to I guess the typical prognosis and what they had thought your pathway was going to be? Yeah, my doctor just found me fascinating. He was very very high profile rheumatologist, head of department at one of the major hospitals here, high accolades, very very senior medical indoctrinated man professional right he said he's never seen anyone do what i do no one even touched upon the directions that i went down and he just like was amazed by things like my cholesterol levels he and what was funny to me was that he used to look at my cholesterol with as much interest as my inflammation. I couldn't give a toss about my my cholesterol, right? I'm trying to get inflammation down, but he's like, "How do you do that with your cholesterol?" He's like, "If you could bottle what you're doing with your cholesterol, it would be unbelievably transformative to the world." And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Hey, look at my CRP and my ESR. They're down to normal. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good as well. You know, but he just thought the cholesterol thing was a 
fascinating thing. So C-reactive protein is one of the mm, major markets. The major market. It's the marker to determine whether or not you should be going on more drugs. Or I mean, it's pretty simple when you're treating these conditions. It, it, it's pretty simple. You basically have a whole bunch of medications of which there's a hierarchy and then you've got a person in front of you and you can monitor them in two ways. Look at their joints and see if they're blown uninflamed and uh, and look at their blood markers. If their blood markers are high and they look inflamed because you've touched and feel their joints, you better give them more drugs. Yeah. And if, if their symptoms look pretty low and their joints are cool and the joints move and they're not red and inflamed and their blood, in, uh, blood levels look fine, then the drugs they're on at the moment are just fine. And that's pretty much the approach, obviously, with a massive number of, of complications when someone's pregnant, they're trying to fall pregnant, they can't tolerate a certain class of drug, and that's where it gets complicated. But the general approach is increase or keep the same. No one's talking lowering. No one's really talking, let's get off mm. the drug. But I wanted to get off that methotrexate. And I said, look, if we can get a couple of months in a row of normal inflammation levels and normal blood, can we start to get off the medication? The doctor said, yes. He's like, yeah, okay, let's well, let's do it. And I had some ups and downs. I, it was hard for me to get consistent low blood tests over three, four months. But I was able to, we went from 25, 20, 17.5, 15. And I was on 15 milligram when I got married did my honeymoon in Hawaii and discovered papaya. Now, papaya, rich in papain, a digestive an enzyme that helps digestion of proteins. I ate papaya before every single cooked meal that I had in Hawaii. And by the time we left three weeks in Hawaii, I could eat so many more foods than what I could before we went to our wedding. I mean, it was amazing, wow. right? So then I'm like, totally like pumped about my progress because now blood is in my, I'm now eating black beans and rice. I'm eating burritos. God forbid. It had been years since I'd been able to eat something so delicious. And then when we're in the States, we pack up, we fly back to Australia to recommence, re-get back into our life in Australia. Oh shit. I've left the methotrexate in America. So we get back to Australia. It takes me a week before I realize it's time to take the drug. So it's a once a, once a week dose. It's a once a week dose. Gotcha. A week goes by. I didn't look for it. I look for it and think I better take it. It's not there. We might be in the States. We contact uh, my mother-in-law. She looks for it, gets back to us the next day, says, oh, yeah, it's here. What do you want to do with it? I'll send it to Australia. Takes her a day or two. She sends it to Australia. Takes 10 days to get to Australia. By that point, I'm nearly two, two and a half, three weeks and I haven't taken the drug. And I feel exactly the same. And I'm like, well, I know it takes three or four weeks for it to leave. No, sorry. It, it's a very slow onboarding and slow offboarding drug. Nothing happens when you take it for the first month, okay? And it doesn't start to leave your body for a few weeks after you. Yeah? So I debated about it and I ummed and ahed and we didn't really talk about it. I just didn't take it, right? And I n- have never taken it since and my inflammation levels didn't shift. So I was on that final 15 milligram of methotrexate and it had absolutely zero effect on me by that time when I stopped taking it and I didn't know. So here we were like incrementally tweaking it down 2.5 after several months of inflammation. The whole time, if I'd have just stopped it like I did, um, Nothing happened. That's incredible. Yeah, and it just—I don't recommend that approach, but that was at, that was fascinating. At this stage, had you begun to sort of identify with 
plant-based diet and you're like, okay, I, you know, for the rest of my life, I'm going to live a plant-based diet or were you sort of thinking, okay, I can eliminate these foods and I might be able to bring back meat and bring back dairy. Where was your mindset at and had you, had you been able to sort of draw any direct links between various animal products? You did mention dairy, but other than dairy with these markers of inflammation. At that point, when I like coming back and I was under the bean burritos and stuff, coming back to Australia, I was all in plant based. I was like, there's no way I'm ever eating that stuff again. I mean, there's, there's just no way. I mean, I think of dairy with, with such a, a disgust, absolute disgust. Like, it's hard for me to watch people eat dairy because I know what that's going to do to them and, and the naivety behind it. Um, consuming something from another animal that's then been multiply processed and put into a format that the body just can't assimilate regardless of whether or not you're lactose intolerant. I mean, it's just a disgusting thing for me. I just find it repulsive. I've got no interest in ever having dairy again. The meat, occasionally, once every blue moon, I get tempted by the smell of a meat. Not barbecue chickens. They used to make me really oh they smell good i used to go to that a lot and now they smell like rotting flesh mm. yeah um but you know sometimes i'll watch someone just devour a pizza with absolute joy and i'm like oh yeah pizza used to take taste really good but there is nothing sending me back in the other direction when you've been through hell and back and you've basically sacrificed years of your life trying to get well at the expense of everything else. I Like I was starting to get on TV with my stand-up and everything, but I just became uh, – it was so hard for me to sit down and write a joke because I'd sit down, I'd try and write a joke, and all I could think was my hand's not working, my wrist doesn't my, – my elbow's uncomfortable, I'm, my knee's killing me. You can't write jokes when all you can think is the pain that you're getting. You want to get up and go and try and eliminate. So, no, like at that point I was already – I was already all in and, and then I, I actually gained the first sense of, you know what, and, and, and it's just profound, the depth of this feeling. I thought if I can do this, the impact on the world would be amazing and that's when I started pulling out the video camera and I started filming some of the challenges I was having and documenting and an it. Example. In a, yeah, in a way that was kind of like maybe only a few years be- before vlogging became popular. What year was this roughly? When you, when you so what year did you get married? Uh, seven years ago. So we're talking 2012. Yeah, and I'd started filming. So so yes, yeah, seven years ago. I mean, yeah. So vlogging, what is it? Video logging yeah. just sounds filthy. Vlogging, I'm going to vlog you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but but I was just self-documenting. Yeah. I was just self-documenting. I didn't share any of that stuff and it hasn't been shared online, all of that. Only a few snippets of like a couple of hours of footage. Yeah. It's funny to look back at some of it and, and see the things I was doing. But I knew that if I could do this, then my discoveries would have massive impact. And I have only believed, I believe I only just scratched the surface so far. I mean, the impact I think is going to be far more tremendous. Yeah, I watched a couple mm. of your videos on YouTube where you were vlogging and it was you were showing the amount of pain and the difficulty just getting up. I think you were getting up from your from your bed to the to the clothes, the cupboard yeah, or something to get your clothes. But and then you showed yourself running. Yeah. Right. How, yeah. What was the, What was the total time frame? Probably like three to four years. Yeah. Wow. Nothing happened quick. 
nothing happens. I, uh, there's only two ways to heal this disease. It's the very, very, very slow way and the very, very slow way. There's no in-between. Right? So it's all going to take a very long time. And, and your specialist, when you... Did you, did you go back and see your specialist mm-hmm. and say, yeah, I mm-hmm. haven't been taking mm-hmm. this drug and, and what, mm-hmm. was, what was their reaction at that stage? Well, because it was genuinely innocent. I genuinely forgot to, to bring that thing, to, to bring that home. And whether or not that subconsciously, I don't know. But, I mean, normally I'm not too careless. That was just carelessness. He said, that's okay. He said, well, we'll just see how you go without it. I mean, the gentleman is just such a lovely man and I send clients to him who live uh, in the northern beaches, uh, not northern beaches, in on the eastern suburbs, and um, he uh, and he said, "Well, let's just see how you go." And sure enough, had he, had he seen that before? No. Like, is that no. considered when it comes to rheumatoid arthritis? That's considered reversal. Impossible. Like impossible. He'd never seen not one person. M- talking multiple decades, he'd been in the business. Never seen one person get off their drugs. Not one. It's incredible. Yeah. Now. But then he shared a story with me that made me really, really made this all drive this whole thing home. He said that during during some concentration camp, during wartime, there were some Australian prisoners, Australian and New Zealand prisoners, who were trapped in an Asian prisoner of war camp. And I forget which war. And he said that there was an Australian doctor who was looking after them as also a prisoner of war and keeping an eye and keeping notes on these other people. And some of them had rheumatoid arthritis who were in the prisoner of war camp. And, uh, and it was recorded that after just eating the very, very basic foods that were given to them by the, by the, prison, by the prison guards, which was just potatoes and rice, that all their symptoms went away. And he told me that story and he said, this is a, this is a story that's known within, rheumatoid, within the rheumatology community. And he said, I believe the notes that were taken by this doctor are somewhere held at, at like a, um, a uh, what do you call it, um, like a place to hold important records, a museum yeah, in Canberra. Australian National Museum or something. So I tried to find these notes and about the information about this doctor and I wasn't able to. And I, uh, but anyway, um, it was enough just hearing him tell me this, that this was a fact, this actually happened. Like there was no audience involved, this me and him. And he's like, this happened and this doctor, and I, I forget that doctor's name, but I've written it in my book so I can refer to it later. It's, I mean, it's in my, my program materials. So, and, and it's like, you know what? Getting back to the absolute basics of the food, the simplest, most unprocessed, most humble possible foods, it would not just me. It's the prisoner of wars, it's guys as well, right? And then and then I thought, this is this is just too massive. This has to be like put together and I have to share all this information. And you know, this is when Melissa said to me, you know, all that we've been through, if we can just help one person, just one person by putting this information online, then it will be of but we'll be worth it, you know, if we can help one person. And and so that's kind of how the program began. And we started to, we just created an ebook and put it online. And then the Patterson program. Right. It started as just a 200 page ebook. Now it's a, a, a digital course and, and all sorts of support features and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, tell me, tell me what the, the course entails. And, you know, is it people from around the world that are getting involved? What are, what are some of the case studies and some of the experiences that, you've had through the program 
the, the, definitely the, 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 the case studies is the best part of what I do and the most enjoyable part, just like yourself have a podcast and it's become sort of synonymous with our program. In fact, people can do our program entirely by just listening to the podcast. They don't need to spend any money. Um, if they have no money but a lot of time, and they normally, those the ways normally it goes, you know, some people uh, don't have a lot of money but they've got time, they can just listen to specific podcasts or listen to all of them. They can follow along and, and do our program very successfully. The case studies we bring onto the podcast and they talk about their experiences and their experiences is pretty much starts out the same. They often listen to someone else on our podcast and they feel inspired because that person talks about how they were able to, um, you know, reduce their inflammation. Most cases get off some or all of their medications and increase their physical exercise, which I really, really encourage. And so then they go online, they get our program, they do our program And then they also increase their physical exercise. They make the changes that are recommended, which is simply to um, do a two-day juice cleanse of celery and cucumber juice. That just resets the body and it gives them the experience that I had. I want people to have that experience that I had where two days and you don't eat and you feel amazing. When you have that experience, you get the hope back. Yeah. And and, and it's huge. Yeah. And I want them to have that experience. And most people can do two days on celery and cucumber. And then we put them through the shinya, the, the gastroenterologist. I have them on buckwheat and quinoa, right? Let's just eat that for, for, for 10 more days. Like shinya does every day of his life, if the gastroenterologist can live off it, we can do it for 10 days. So we do that for 10 days. And then we reintroduce foods in a sequence that I've found tends to be best for people to continue their anti-inflammatory, like the papaya. Right? We want to get the papaya in there. And there's some other specific foods that are low inflammatory, things like zucchini and yellow squash. These things are used at True North Health Centre as reintroduction foods right off the bat because no one seems to react to those. You're getting a couple of wins, you're getting these foods back in and some of the helpful things, uh, some of the helpful fruits like the papaya, cantaloupe and stuff. And then, um, and then before you know it, you're on a, you're on a low-fat plant-based diet and your inflammation is way, way, way down. You're dropping a lot of your pain, discretionary pain killers, you know, your non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and you're feeling more capable of maybe getting on a stationary bike or going for a long walk, and it, it, it self-perpetuates. You feel better, and studies are now showing as well that feeling good helps reduce inflammation. And so you've got this positive cycle instead of a negative cycle, And then we have a community as well that I've set up and it's a support community where people can interact with each other on the program and they can interact with me. And so that's a coaching platform where I basically go in there every day and I look at every single post and I I offer suggestions and tips and stuff. And so it's important so that they, you know, we spoke earlier to the point that you can easily feel isolated or lonely Mm -hmm. with rheumatoid arthritis. Is it the, the people in the program are they, do they just have rheumatoid arthritis or are there other forms of, of arthritis? Um, there are, like um, sciatic arthritis we mentioned before is very, very, uh, well, a, a significant portion of our clients because really these conditions, sciatic arthritis is, is pretty much just the same disease as rheumatoid arthritis, um, but it's diagnosed sometimes as differently because with rheumatoid it's very symmetric. So if you've got it in left hand, it's often in the right. Same finger, same joint. Sciatic, sometimes it's not as symmetric. 
and sometimes there is some psoriasis, as you'd imagine with the sciatic arthritis, yeah? And, and often there's not. And with sciatic, sometimes the blood indicators aren't there, like the rheumatoid factor and stuff. So, but, the, but the symptoms, the experience for the person is exactly the same, and I find that the experience for them following our program is exactly the same. You've got the same disease disorder. You just have like a doctor giving it a different name. And so people with fibromyalgia and ankylosing spondylitis, uh, these folks have, uh, we've got case studies, fantastic, life-changing case studies in those categories as well. So would you say everyone experiences some improvement to a degree that, that, that ch- adopts and commits to this low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet, no oil? It's very, very rare for someone not to improve. I mean, it's almost unheard of because it's not really like our program. It's using nature isn't it? It's just basically going to the most basic format of the most whole foods that we can and telling people to exercise more. And the subtleties of it or the nuances that are hard to appreciate until you get into it are the food sensitivity side of things. And that's where a lot of it's very, very interesting. The choice of buckwheat, quinoa, amaranth, that's profound. That's crucial because they're alkalizing in an acidic body is a synonymous with rheumatoid arthritis, which is the blame thing if we have time to get in if you want to. Sure, um, definitely. Let's, let's go into that next. Let's go into that next, yeah. So you've got to alkalize the body. And even foods that I recommend people graduate to and introduce, like rice, they're acidifying. Rice is acidifying for the body. And so we need to avoid all acidifying foods for a long period, and that's why every food in the first 12 days is alkalizing and then the foods that are reintroduced first are also alkalizing. So we're just delaying this acidosis as much as we can. So it's very hard not to get improvements. But, of course, there are some people and they come up from time to time. We might see one a month out of a large volume of people doing the program, one a month. And there's a checklist that I provide these people as to why this might be. And one of the most common things on the checklist that turns out to be the case is that they experience inflammation even in the absence of food. This is the test, right? The test is, did you experience pain relief during the two-day cleanse? And if the answer is no, then you fall into a very small category and the treatment process from there is different. Because if you can't reduce your inflammation by not eating and then you go and eat, of course you're not going to improve because your your base level of inflammation is even when you're empty, mm. okay? Why does that happen? Is because the proteins that you're reacting to aren't coming from the food. They're in the lining around the cell of bacteria and it's the gut bacteria, your own gut bacteria leaking into your blood. You're reacting to the proteins in the bacteria and this is well documented in the science. This is, this is you know, confirmed by you know, published medical papers. So when our body has the molecular mimicry, it's reacting to food proteins and bacterial proteins. If you take all the food away from most people, then they calm right down to almost to zero, a lot to zero, like I did to zero. But in some people, those bacterial proteins still remain a problem. And the only way forward for those folks in most cases is to take appropriate levels of medication to suppress the inflammation enough so that then they can eat the foods 
that will then change the gut bacteria in a way that then those pathogenic proteins aren't there anymore. So we have. So there is a way, but it's a different way. pathway. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. in terms of the the general advice from specialists out there, you know, with regards to diet, what, what is what is the dietary advice that most patients that are diagnosed with any of these inflammatory conditions are given? And secondly, are there any clinical trials, you know, randomized trials that are looking at the effect of groups that say, for example, have a controlled diet versus mm. a plant-based or predominantly plant-based diet? Yeah, good. So um, first of all, if you speak to rheumatologists and I was to just, you know, anecdotally, the feedback that I get from my clients uh, doing our program is that their discussions around diet with their rheumatologist invariably is met with diet doesn't matter. That's the neutral response. Some are met with aggression around it and say, if you're going to do these dietary things and not take my medications, then you can find another doctor. There are some, some occasionally that are met with aggression against diet and say, forget it. Why do you think they're met with that aggression? Well, I think that if you are, if we play it, flip it around and we're the rheumatologist and someone comes in and you take pride in your work and you take pride in the outcome of your patients and you attend the medical conferences year in, year out, and there's no presentations ever around diet. And the patients that you do see say they tried to eliminate fish, nothing happened. Another one comes in, he's on a paleo diet got worse or nothing happened. Another one comes in and says, oh, I eliminated nightshade vegetables and I feel a lot better, but then they see them on the next visit and they're worse. You start to build your own belief system that none of the medical community believe that diet's worth talking about at my expensive conferences and none of my patients come in with any significant consistency with improvements or even between them about what's the right way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And like you can understand mm. that that's, yeah. Product of their environment and what they're seeing. Yeah. They're exposed to. And the reason is no one, no one's coming in doing no oils, no meat, mm. no dairy and exercising every day. They are now. They are now because we've had thousands of people do our program now around the world. A rheumatologist seeing your program. They are. They are. Now I'm seeing blood tests where it says person is on methotrexate and the Patterson program. That's incredible. It's cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's feel good. It does. Yeah. We've got doc- doctors recommending our program now. It, you know, rheumatologists being the, the ultimate sort of the pinnacle of the tree, the hierarchy, the, you know, the tip of the tip of the iceberg, uh, it takes a long time for, the, for it to kind of reach that top. So general practitioners, for example, are far more forthcoming with recommending our program than the specialists, right? But we're getting there. And- um, what about um, happening. controlled trials? Yeah, so the controlled trials. So Dr. Neil Barnard, who we both met at the conference in Melbourne, uh, I was fortunate to just uh, coincidentally sit next to him at dinner on the first night and we got chatting about arthritis and, uh, and, and he, he's running trials at his clinic doing plant-based interventions with people with rheumatoid arthritis. And he actually, uh, uh, he and I talked about some potential mods to the what to what he's up to, and he's yeah you know, thinking about thinking about specifically. We talked about the reintroduction of fruit and when that should be, and because my program eliminates fruit for the first twelve days, and his is just 
or not just to say that it's not correct, but his includes fruit. So we were just talking about this whether- is like a low, a, just a low, a low fat plant based diet, similar to what he'd used in his type two diabetes trials. I don't know. No, but no, yeah, but but there's, there's some fruit. subtle differences. Yeah, there's some subtle differences, and we would we were kind of you know bouncing around about the possibility of whether it should be there or not for a period of time. Anyway, there was that. And then there's also in the UK, I'm aware of a, a large trial going on and I acted as a informal consultant to this trial that's happening in the UK. And I don't know when that'll be published, but it's in process at the moment and it's plant-based. But the issue with that, I'm concerned about this is it's just not low fat enough. So, you know, it's going to be one of these things that may or may not result in some conclusions made by the medical community that remain for a period of time. But in you know my view, perhaps maybe not low enough in fat, but we shall see. We shall see. When you, you say low fat, is there you know, a, a rough, I'm assuming people are, are not counting the calories in the program or they're in, eating intuitively, but roughly as a percentage of energy, what do you think the fat would be providing? You know, I don't know. I don't know as a percentage of calories, but we've run the program through Foodworks, which is a nutritional yeah. software. And Robin Shooter, who's the naturopath who we also had at the conference, um, she and I worked on the nutritional breakout of the even the baseline period, the, those 12 days where you're just eating these simple foods. When we ran the, ran, the, ran the numbers on my body weight and my age, as long as I ate the amount of food that I need to meet my calorie requirements, we were meeting all, including the essential fatty acids and uh, protein, calcium, everything okay, there you that go. we needed. Yeah. So that's another fabulous thing about these particular pseudo grains, you know, the buckwheat, the quinoa and the amaranth. I mean, what they offer in terms of nutrition is unbelievable. You know, we don't need a lot of variety. You know, it's all, it's all there. Okay, well, it will be fascinating to see the results of that trial nonetheless and, and what Dr. Barnard's yeah. up to. The BLAME acronym that we just mentioned, take us through that, what, what the acronym stands for and the individual components are. Yeah, I come up with this because I had to try and think of a way of remembering how to talk about this in presentations. And so I thought what would be a nice acronym that's easy for me to remember and other people to remember that kind of fits with the situation. And so BLAME actually came out quite nicely after I rearranged the, the letters and stuff. So BLAME actually has two A's in it. So BLAME stands for bacterial overgrowth. So B for bacterial overgrowth, leaky gut for L. And then A for acidosis, we talked about a little bit already. And then A for acid in the stomach. Okay. And then M for mucosal lining. And then E for enzyme deficiency. Okay. So what they are. So I'll just go through each one, just spend 30 seconds or a minute. So each one of these aspects, I don't I so I don't have to say this every time, is supported by medical publications. Right. I have these medical publications. If people want to read these, they can go to our website, pattersonprogram.com forward slash G-U-I-D-E guide. I believe it comes up with guide or it's guide dash four dash. I'll put it in the show notes with a direct link. Great. But great. these are the the contributing factors. These are the contributing factors and everything I'm about to say. There is a medical published paper that I can reference so that... Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So I don't have to say that with each bullet point. Um, so people with rheumatoid arthritis have a bacterial overgrowth. They have more pathogenic bacteria than those people with normal bowel bacterial levels. And they're, they're, the more bacterial overgrowth you have, the more symptoms you have. 
Okay, so there's a direct proportional relationship between bad bacteria and your symptoms. Okay, so that's bacteria. So we know that we've got a bacterial overgrowth and we've got L for leaky gut. And what's happening is we've talked about the particles from our food and those bacterial pathogens are getting into our bloodstream via our gut wall, which has become more leaky by even stress will bring on that, poor diet, um, antibiotics, other drugs like prednisone, other rheumatoid arthritis drugs, which is, you know, this terrible situation where you're taking medications to eliminate the pain, but you're actually making the situation worse. So there's several drugs that do that in the in the treatment regime. So you've got this leaky gut, which is really common, by the way. We all get temporary leaky gut when we're faced with sudden fear. The body dumps the energy from the from the digestive tract straight into the blood. So we've got lots of resources if we want to run, but then it settles back down again. But long-term stress will cause this uh, to become more of a um, uh, chronic situation long-term. So we've got leaky gut and then we've got acidosis, meaning that the body is consuming too many foods that adding acid to the body and making the non- blood liquids in our body more acidic right so then we've got this toxic load that contributes to in our bowel the wrong bacteria and just to a feeling of low energy and and poor health and then we've got stomach acid a second a for acid in the stomach so folks with rheumatoid arthritis have low stomach acid this contributes to poor protein digestion meaning that more whole proteins are going through your body and ending up creating fermentation in the bowel or even worse passing through the gut wall and becoming a problem for the immune system which then cross reacts to your joints okay so undigested proteins is a big issue and that's why the papaya and the papain was assisting my health so much because it was assisting with breaking down the proteins, which is why one of the very few enzymes, sorry, very few supplements that I recommend people to take in parallel to our program is bromelain, which is the equivalent enzyme found in in pineapple. Okay, so that's the two A's and then M for mucosal lining. So the mucosal lining is where the bacteria in our bowel live. They sit on the epithelium in a whole uh, strip of mucus. And if that mucus becomes depleted through predominantly things like taking steroids, which is used for inflammation reduction, pregnisolone, pregnisolone, prednisone, yep, you will deplete your mucosal lining. And then there's nowhere for the bacteria to live. You can eat as much sauerkraut as you want. You can take probiotics all day, but you won't won't add to your flora whatsoever because you've got no mucosal lining. And this is common and this is found in folks with rheumatoid. And I'm sure in so many other people with things like ulcerative colitis and other Crohn's and all these other bowel disorders and all the other uh, inflammatory arthritis conditions that we've talked about. So the mucosal lining takes the longest to heal in my view. We can restore the shift of bacteria. We can improve stomach acid. We can quickly change the acidosis, but trying to restore that mucus takes a long time because I believe that the foods that we need to do that have to be graduated to slowly. Foods like oats, it takes a long time. The, the, you know, that, the, the mucusy or the sliminess that oats can have is helpful for that, but it, you can't go eat oats on day one because that cereal grain is highly reactive. And so we just have to build up a tolerance to our foods and get to that later. That's why this whole thing takes so long. There's a sequence we must go through to restore and then to, to, to add that almost a glossy coat to the um, 
bowel wall at the end, and then enzyme deficiency being the last, uh, the E for the for the acronym. Um, you know, we're just all deficient of enzymes, and enzymes probably like the first the starting point for me with my healing, and it, it's still one of my most favourite parts of this whole process because if you've got enzymes, you can just break down stuff. It's just little scissors that just cut down your foods. Fats to amino, fats to fatty acids, proteins to amino acids, and get down your carbohydrates down to simple sugars. And I just think that if if we can just flood our body constantly with enzymes, it just helps to take care of all of the cooked foods that we eat, and just keeps us vibrant. And unused enzymes get used for metabolic enzymes and uh, away from the digestion. So. Enzymes, you know, I keep coming back to this time and time again, but uh, I like to go with um, eating lots of fruits between meals and that just basically almost like a bride who has the, the, the rose petals laid out for where she's going to walk. The enzymes that we eat from the fruit can then be used and line the digestive tract for the cooked food that follows and just helps to break it all down. And yeah, when we're when we're sick and inflamed, we uh, we have a deficiency and an inability to break down our foods, and that's where the enzymes comes in. So that's my acronym. That's my blame. Fascinating. Now, this has just brought me to a, a question which we didn't really cover at the start, but we're we're talking, I guess, with, with that acronym in terms of the causes of these conditions, but. I'm assuming that a lot of what we're also talking about is for people who are listening who do not have rheumatoid arthritis uh, about preventing oh, yeah. preventing this or any other type of autoimmune condition from occurring in the first place. That's mm. the first part of my question. Yeah. And secondly, which we may have skipped over at the start, is there is there any genetic or hereditary component to this disease as well? Uh it's, I'm sure you've heard this this metaphor before, but there is a genetic component which can, you know, which is the gun, you know, this one, but it's the lifestyle that pulls the trigger. And so I believe that we all have genetic predispositions and weaknesses to all sorts of conditions based on our family history. But we dramatically reduce the likelihood of any of those becoming a reality in our life by eating the right foods. And so Yes, there is a statistical increased likelihood of someone with rheumatoid arthritis if in their past to develop it themselves. But but my rheumatologist told me straight up, you guys can have kids. There's no problem with having children. And we had to get off the methotrexate, which was a huge driver, right? That was one of my big motivators. But he said, it's okay to have kids. They're not going to get this disease. Now, he was quite emphatic about they won't get it. But I think that you know, uh, there is a heightened risk and we have to be careful. That's why we don't give the kids dairy. Dairy is the big risk factor and we've got to be so careful with antibiotics, antibiotics and dairy, yeah? So how do you manage that in your family in terms of if they get sick yeah. and, and the doctors are saying they need to take a course of antibiotics? Fortunately, our, uh, you know, we've got a girl who's about to turn three years old. She's never had antibiotics once, has never been sick enough to have antibiotics, which I think is pretty rare for a three-year-old, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I don't know, but I, I, I think that's pretty rare. Our four-year-old, who's about to turn five, she's had, I think, maybe two courses of it, I want to say, and they've both been for ear infections. When you got an ear infection and the, and the child's really small, it's like high risk factor if you don't go and have them take the antibiotics because it can lead to impaired hearing and stuff. And so, in fact, one time we went in like a day late. She'd had it for one day and we went in on the 
Now, I might have had it for two days, went day three. Doctor was like, what are you doing? Like, you got to get in straight away, straight on the antibiotics. So, look, um, yeah, so we are sensible. Well, we're not the crazy, crazy hippie style, you know, vegans. We are the, uh, we are the, uh, yeah, minimize it where possible, but if it's, it. if it's absolutely required, that's it. In terms of the other question with regards to how do you avoid getting these kind of conditions? Well, um, I encourage everyone to avoid oils. Okay. So all we're doing, it creates, it creates permeability. Okay. Fat creates more permeability at the gut wall. So definitely avoid pure fat. Like there's no nutritional value. It's just empty calories. They're just oils are processed food takes an enormous factory to make them. They purify easy. I mean, it's just not a food we should be eating. Mm. It's pretty it's, – it's one of those groups of foods where, you know, like we know we know refined sugars, right? We know added yeah. sugar, okay, it's heavily processed, probably not good for us guys, but then oil is, is the refined sugar of the fats. You know, it's the equivalent. Exactly. That's great. Yeah, exactly. So – but we don't sort of – put it in the same bad books, do we? Oh, most people don't. That's why I guess, you know, of all things to talk about, I like to, you know, I start with that one today because I just think that that's the one that gets so easily sort of accepted and uh, people don't like also to be told not to eat their oils. It's funny enough, when, when people follow our program along and they said, oh, you know, some people say, I used to think that I liked salad, but what I realised is I actually just liked oil. <laughs> right, because <laughs> once you take the oil away, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're just eating the yeah, greens, yeah, a little bit of greens with their oil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that always makes me laugh, and people say that from time to time. Um, and so we want to avoid oils, um, and and just I mean it's pretty simple. But if you just go whole food, plant based, and that includes obviously avoiding oils, and you minimize the use of external medications that aren't necessary because you've done that, um, it's going to be pretty hard to get this disease. I mean, they reckon that no one in Africa ever had rheumatoid arthritis before the 1960s. It's only with the advent of Western you know, uh, population growth and access to these foods. So we're talking about a disease that is entirely a lifestyle disease and the, the argument sometimes is, well, what about people who develop it right from birth? Like they're only one year old. I've got a client who's phenomenal. Her name's Katie and uh, she is uh, only 27 years old, but she's been, she had rheumatoid arthritis, which they call juvenile idiopathic arthritis when you're under the age of 18. It's the same disease. Same, same disease. Same, I was going to ask you that. My opinion, same exact okay. disease. It's just that they're under 18, they call it juvenile idiopathic. As far as I'm concerned, it's just a kid with rheumatoid arthritis, right? She got it when she was one. So how do you get it when you're one? Well, the proteins from consuming milk, the mum, when the mum's consuming milk, the, the cow, uh, the cow uh, casein proteins go straight from the mum's breast milk straight into the kid. And if the kid has a hypersensitivity to this casein and it keeps reacting to casein, it keeps ending up in the blood, you can develop this disease. It's that simple. There's some associations as well, I think, between the protein in dairy and type 1 diabetes as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Casein is yeah, dangerous stuff. We, uh, this is really, really highly frequently implicated with all autoimmune conditions. Most definitely. 
and it can trigger it. And I believe that's triggered it in uh, in Katie. And uh, she's now doing phenomenally well, just by the way. So she's adopted Bikram Yoga, which is the yoga that I endorse. Just have nothing to do with them. Don't, I just tell everyone to go do it because it's so awesome. And she is now representing like her studio at national level. Yeah, wow. And uh, whilst she has some physical limitations uh, with her the straightness of her elbow and her hands and so forth, I mean, it's just remarkable to see what she's doing. She has no inflammation, like nothing. She's still on a drug called Enbrel, which is like the competitor to Humira. Um, but, it, but um, you know, she's been on that since for the last 10 years and it hasn't held her symptoms at bay. But now not only that, they're gone, she hasn't touched the dosage of drug and she's off daily high levels of Vicodin and stuff. So I get inspired by her because she's very inspiring. She was like shocking from one year old, man, one year old. Mm. Yeah, it must be tough as yeah. well for parents to yeah. have a kid at you know that one one year of age who can't talk but is in all this pain and I know they used to get they used to um, rouse on her because she used to pee her pants a lot during the night, mm. but she said I I knew I'm not I'm no I'm going to get I know I'm going to get a spanking for this tomorrow, but it hurts so much to get out of bed I'm just going to lie here and pee my bed because it's just so painful to get to the bathroom, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, that, that I guess for someone who hasn't been through it, that paints a bit of a picture as to, you know, the, the, the pain that, that you go mm-hmm. through with these conditions. It's, it's yeah. not easy. Nah. It's debilitating, right? That's it. What about some of the, the other causes? You know, you hear about things like gluten or whether you're natural birth or cesarean, yeah. um, breastfed versus, we just talked about mm. that a little bit, but breastfed versus, you know, formula, are there, are there sort of any tight associations between these types of things and the development of, of these arthritic conditions? So I can speak on what I observe anecdotally and then I can draw upon one scientific study that I'm aware of where the likelihood of getting rheumatoid arthritis has been shown to be linked to the amount of animal protein consumed by the pregnant mother. So that's an interesting one, right? So if you're eating a lot of animal protein as a parent, you're pregnant, there is a link between a heightened increased risk of rheumatoid arthritis. Now, I found that interesting. In terms of what I observe and and also I just think common wisdom around this from people who, who, who are in these sort of fields of interest is that, um, you know, we know that a, for instance, you mentioned type one diabetes. We know that if you have a cesarean birth, your risk published evidence, uh, published fact is that you, your risk of getting type one diabetes is much elevated. Okay. We know that. And I think drawing upon that from a, for, from all autoimmune diseases, you would expect that rheumatoid arthritis risk would be increased as well. Same with the breastfeeding. I imagine that you're more likely to have a better life across the board by being breastfed for longer as opposed to formula. And then uh, other risk factors, I, you know, I think that um, other than those key ones, what I observe is, you know, the, the use of antibiotics is the one that I always nod my, nod my head and, and, and feel like, yep, here we go again about when I see that. 
So people post inside our support group their opening spiel and they say, this is me, I'm Joe from Boston, Massachusetts and I've had rheumatoid for five years and this is my story and these are the drugs that I'm on and this is why I'm here and this is what I want to achieve. And so frequently... Bob took antibiotics at some point for a long period of time. and Commonality. Yeah. And the other commonality is women say, you know, I've just given birth to my daughter in 2015 and then I developed joint pain. So they're the most common, long-term antibiotics and not long after I had a baby. Those are the, those are the two common. Can't do much about the not long after the baby, but we could be more place more awareness on how much antibiotics we're taking. Now, something that I find quite interesting, I'm not sure, have you come across a lady by the name of Michaela Patterson? I have, only recently. Yeah, so I thought this would be an interesting one in case any of the listeners have also come across her story. And I know that she's done a bunch of of podcasts and I believe she has rheumatoid arthritis and had been through various diets and has over the last year or so moved to a carnivore type Mm. of diet, right, and Mm. is talking about the benefits that she has seen have you have you thought about this and is there is there any sort of theory at your end as to why she would be experiencing symptom relief as she says from removing um, everything except for meat left in the diet yeah so you know her name only entered my ears for the first time about 10 days ago i only know what you have just told me about her. So I don't know what she's tried in the past. I don't know anything else about her situation, what drugs she was on or what she's currently on, if any. This is a pretty high-level uh, response, yeah. So, But let's just talk in general. So for, putting her sort of individual story to the side, right? how would you explain someone getting benefits from removing all plant foods and just eating meat? in terms of their arthritic symptoms? Well, clearly something else in her diet was causing a problem. Okay, let's talk about meat in a second. But first of all, something else was causing a problem in her trigger. diet. Trigger. Trigger. That trigger could have been cereal grains. I mean, not all plant foods are tolerable for folks when they're highly reactive and highly inflamed. She could have been having oats for breakfast, which I eat every day now. But if I had a tried back when I was trying my raw food diet, if I had to eat oats for breakfast, I would have lit up. So she could have been having oats. She could have been having bread. She could have been having all these things, which, I mean, even cooked potatoes these days that I eat now, I could not have eaten back then. Any of these things could have been a a trigger for her. And of course, we keep bringing up dairy. She could have been having dairy products, even if she was vegetarian, but having dairy, she could have been in all sorts of pain and so on. So my response is something was triggering her really badly. And once she eliminated that, then those symptoms, which were reacting to that trigger have gone. Now let's talk about what she's eating right now. Okay. So she's reporting apparently if we just go off what she says on on the internet, which of course she can write whatever she wants, doesn't need to be reality, but let's take her for face value and say that she's doing fantastic and that uh, she's her inflammation levels are, are normal, her C-reactive protein levels are normal, she doesn't feel inflammation in her joints. Let's imagine that that's the case, right? Hopefully it is for her, I want that for her. Is what she's eating going to allow her to be in that state for a long period? Almost certainly not. So the question is, where is Michaela Patterson going to be in one, 
two, three, four, five years time from now. And that's what worries me because mm. we know there's a, the, the studies show, okay, and I can produce these and we'll link to them if you want. The studies show across a summary of all, you know, they do these meta, meta, meta-analysis. meta-analysis, right? Meat and meat fat are the number one linked inflammatory food for rheumatoid arthritis. The number one, okay? You go back over 20 years, look at every study done on, on, on nutrition and rheumatoid arthritis, it's summarized as number one. So how is she going to be if she eats the number one most inflammatory food mm-hmm. for the condition that she's trying to suppress? Like if I were her family, I would be really concerned about where that's going to end up. And that's only speaking to rheumatoid arthritis risk, you know, w- w- knocking out <laughs> knocking out legumes and, and whole grains and consuming meat mm. also you know, according to all the science and epidemiology and randomized controlled trials is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, various cancers, shorter life expectancy, type 2 diabetes. So, you know, I guess eliminating whatever that trigger food is, is, is no doubt giving symptom relief, but is it is it the answer to longevity? Mm. I would not do what she's doing. That's all I can say. You know, I would not, if I had the symptom relief. Yeah. So if I put myself in her position, I'd be elated that I was able to get rid of that joint pain. And I would be so excited by that. I would also probably find myself enticed by the fame that I'd gotten by being so unique in battling a condition, going about it so differently than what seems Mm. to work for everyone going on to a plant-based diet. So I'd be, you know, enticed by the the popularity that I got and I'd be excited by the fact that I was so unique and I'd be encouraged by all the feedback that everyone was telling me that you're awesome, you're like representing this new area that we also love and all that. And you can imagine that that's appealing and you can buy into that. However, I would also be very, very concerned about needing to get off of a carnivore diet as quickly as possible for my health and for the inevitable day that inflammation returns in a way that can be seen and measured because that's what the meat does to our body. It's inflammatory. You can't get away from it. So her you, body's- You can't argue with that because it's, it's right. very, very well documented in the science. <laughs> right. So it's, it's risky at the very least. Yeah, man. I mean, there are a number of people doing the carnivore diet now, but the, the commonality does seem to be that some sort of trigger has been removed from the diet. It's a mm-hmm. severe elimination diet at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But I guess the best thing that can come out of that would be identifying what that trigger is and then moving back to a more balanced diet. Exactly. Which is incorporating food groups shown to be associated with longevity and reduction in inflammation and things like that. I bet... I'd be almost amazed if she wasn't, for example, able to swap out the meat and substitute it with buckwheat, quinoa, and amaranth and not continue. I'd love to see you guys connect. I think it'll happen one day. We'll get you both on the podcast at some time. Be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's always good to, to to hear from people with different, different ideas and yeah. coming at things from different angles as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it helps us actually to understand. You know, having someone in that situation – and saying, well, what about this? Actually enables us to try and piece the puzzles together and try and work out, well, how does this all work and why? I think it's good. You know, these are more interesting things to 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 uh, 
to contemplate than just more and more case studies of what works. It's what doesn't work that opens up the biggest discoveries, you know? Now, coming back to your family, you said your, your kids don't have dairy. Oh, yeah. Do they, are they, do they eat like a fully plant-based diet? Is, is that something that they have questions about? How do you go about that in terms of, you know, being a father and addressing or fielding any of those questions that may pop up? Yeah. So, the girls are very different. Our little fella, he's only eight months old and he, his name's Aiden and, and uh, he just likes mum's milk, right? Mm. So that's, that's it. He's not asking questions <laughs> to dad yet. <laughs> no, no. He laughs a lot, which is great. And he's so beautiful and, and lovely and, and has a great disposition, but he's not asking questions. And then as we go up in age, let's go, because we end up in the hard one. The, the, the oldest is the hardest one. The middle child, she's about to turn three and she's a breeze. She'll eat everything and anything that we give her. Like she'll, she just loves all the food that we provide. So mum could be providing her with, you know, beans and rice. I love beans and rice, you know, and then we can give her maybe like her pistachio nuts. Pistachios, you know, loves them, yeah. you know. So, and so she's the easiest of all and she's always had a, a nice mid-range weight, a mid-range height and super easy. Then we've got our eldest and she's Angelina and she's always been slim. So she's adopted my body weight. And so Melissa, my wife always wants to make sure that we get more into, into Angelina because she's, uh, she's skinny, you know what I mean? Um, and so her, she's always had challenges with eating. She didn't breastfeed very well, even though she did 15 months of it successfully. She was always like reluctant feeder, uh, reluctant to reintroduce foods, reluctant with this. It takes ages at the dinner table. I mean, one of these kids that you're like, come on, right? No matter how we give her a favorite food, which is uh, gnocchi with pesto as the sauce on it. And she likes it. I love gnocchi, but then she'll sit there for five minutes and we're all talking and hasn't touched it, right? (laughs) Anyway, so um, the challenges are not around keeping them plant-based. It's just the generic challenges of having an eldest that that wants to just be a, a slow eater and just eat doesn't seem to be interested in food that much. She loves pistachio nuts, really loves them like the middle one does, and she'll sit and eat them all day. So we have to, we actually treat them as a treat. So they are her ice cream. They are her treat. If you eat all that, if you finish, if you finish your broccoli and you finish that that bite of of lentils or whatever we're having, then you can have pistachio nuts. Yeah. So that's our that's our treat. They like some of the uh pure pops that you can buy kids sell ice creams are dairy free so they'll have them as a treat and they have things like as snacks things like uh popcorn there's a popcorn that we buy out of Woolworths that doesn't have too much oil on it so the girls are allowed to break rules that i personally have because they don't have that health condition but where i won't compromise are things that are going to set them up for high risk stuff yeah, you know, so that's that's where we're at. And uh, breakfast is oatmeal with dad while mum tries to catch a little more sleep some mornings or just ducks out to to get a coffee or something. Yeah. My wife will have a coffee even though I don't drink it. You know, so we go, I'm the strictest and, and, and the rest of the family are more casual plant-based, but I'm, you know, uh, plant-based with restrictions within that as well. Yeah. Sure. And you know, no doubt everything in your program and, and through your own journey has come from a health angle, you know, much like myself when I transitioned to a plant-based diet. Over the years, have you connected with any of the other pillars of, of veganism? Do you, would you classify yourself as a <laughs> vegan or do you classify yourself as just someone that eats a plant-based diet? 
where do you sort of sit in terms of that? <laughs> That's a really, really good question. So I've thought of myself as going for ultimate health or maximum health and not just healthier, but when you've got rheumatoid arthritis, you need maximum health because everything's against you. You know, one little drop of oil and you can start to see some symptoms come back, right? So we've got to be really, really careful. So we want maximum health and then have minimum symptoms consequently, right? So I've always focused entirely on the health, as you, as you said. So, But it feels fantastic to know that no one's dying because of the way that I'm eating and that I'm not the hypochondriac or, or contradicting my love for dogs versus the enjoyment of eating chickens and, and to give that kind of uh, example. So, you know, it feels light. I feel like I live a light life and I'm moving more in towards the classic old-fashioned style vegan by, I like, I don't, well, I, I have one pair of leather shoes which I bought 10 years ago that I when I wear maybe twice a year to some certain events where I can't wear vegan shoes that I feel uncomfortable about. Yeah. I do. I feel uncomfortable about wearing them and I don't want to be seen wearing them, not because I care about a reputation or anything. I don't want to set any kind of even infinitesimal example. Yeah, well, that that's advertising, okay. right? Yeah, that's it. Um, you know, I'm similar. I've got, I've still got leather in my life from previous purchases yeah. and, and whatnot, but yeah, yeah there is that. That, that sort of weird, eerie feeling, you know, but, if you're walking around with a leather bag or something. Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't feel because when you have given it a thought about what it actually is, and I've had cows on the farm and I've seen cows shot in the head and I've cut open rib cages and pulled out intestines a lot, a lot, helped use chainsaws down spines. You know, I've done all that, right? And I know what leather looks like before it's converted to leather. It's the skin of the cow, it's held on very tight to that muscle. It's hard to get off and it's not pretty, any of this stuff. So, you know, yeah, it doesn't bring back fond memories thinking about those those things. In terms of the environment, um, yeah, I've, I've always had a, a natural love for the outdoors coming from the country and it pains me to watch docos on like the, the rubbish that's floating in the ocean or the, the over in the States we have a house in Jupiter, which is uh, in Florida, and the drive from Orlando to Jupiter, you pass these two enormous landfills, okay? And in the States they're more visible than what they are here. I've never seen a landfill in Australia. I've seen trash dumps where the local council, right? But we're talking like absolute monoliths like, like Uluru size. Wow dumps of rubbish that are being that have little tiny dot looking size tractors and stuff on top of them contributing and filling and filling more and more and more as this enormous landfill and they grass it from the bottom up so the top section is just all this trash and then they keep lumping on top and going away from the highways more and more and then they put grass over the top of it so you got these monoliths and we passed two of them on the way the idea is out of sight out of mind but a lot of it doesn't even disappear a lot of it doesn't disappear. And I, when I see that and the kids go, look, there's the trash, there's the trash, and the kids are very – kids. that's one area that the kids are really f- good. I think the youth generation is very good on the environment. They're Massively, real good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's exciting, man. Well, I think, I think you know, the kids and the youth now, they they understand that they're, <laughs> they've been gifted this. Yeah. <laughs> you can call it a gift. That's right. And it's going to be left to them to a large extent to, to fix. 
I know, I know. They can see that it's it's already a problem, uh, way more than the older generation. I don't know why it's so slow for the more you know middle aged elderly generation to accept that there is climate change. I don't think it's from a a, a personal feeling of guilt. I just think that mm. somehow they have more scepticism about the reality of it that I can't understand why. But Definitely. But I also yeah. think that, you know, get just social media, being active on social media and the way that that connects the world to, to actually bring issues like this to light, mm. the younger generations which are adopting social media and, and are open to looking and, and learning about that content online, they're learning a lot of things that the older generations haven't come across. Yep. Which, you know, gets people thinking and becoming a bit more conscious about yeah. change and, yeah. and the effect that what one, what one person can have, you know, just through their day-to-day life. I know, absolutely. Final message. If someone is listening who has rheumatoid arthritis and may have given up hope, what's your message to them? I heard a story yesterday um, in a Bikram yoga class and the this story came from a teacher who works closely with Bikram himself, okay? So he has got some uh, colourful past, Bikram Chowdhury. Uh, there are some accusations against him that are negative, but there are unbelievable amount of life-transforming um, evidence to show that his yoga, if we just look at his yoga, is incredible, so she worked with him for many years, uh, worked alongside him and, and learnt under him. And she said that there was a guy who came to yoga in a wheelchair, okay, and he, couldn't, he could only move his eyes, just his eyes, because his body was so riddled with arthritis and pain. And the first section of the class of breathing exercise where you look up, you put your hands under your chin and you do a pranayama breathing. So Bikram said to him, just move your eyes, just move your eyes up and move your eyes down, move your eyes up, move your eyes down. And after a couple of weeks, he was able to get some movement just in his jaw like this. Three years later, he was walking. Three years later, going to yoga every single day. So the message is do what you can. If you can only move your eyes, move your eyes, you know, that's the message. And then do more each day. And slowly, with that little bit of, of, of progress, you can then uh, take on a bit more and a bit more. So that's it. Do what you can and do a little more each day. Well, mate, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure to, to have you on the show and, and hopefully I can have you back on in the future. You should be very proud of what you've done in terms of your own journey with rheumatoid arthritis, but more so... I think using your experience to share it with others and, and positively impact other people, it's something that you know I genuinely respect so much and I'm sure the listeners do too and, and, and no doubt the listeners will take away you know, a lot from your words of wisdom today. If anyone would like to get in touch with you or to learn more about Patterson Program, how can they do so? Uh, our website's pattersonprogram.com and it's P-A-D-D. ISON. Uh, it's easy to find uh, if you just make a mistake if you type it into Google. Um, and then you can contact us with just info, I-N-F-O at pattersonprogram.com. That comes through to our help desk. And if you want to direct anything directly to me, 
uh, then people can just say message for Clint. Otherwise, if it's a question about, you know, how to do this, how to do that, blah, 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 we have an FAQ that would impress any business and it's very thorough and it's often me providing personal answers in depth to all common questions around rheumatoid arthritis. So in most instances, uh, a common question can be answered by one of our, our in-depth FAQs, which the staff can send back. So hopefully that's that can cover all bases. If people want to do our program, it's there and they can follow that. Or if they just want to listen to our podcast, they can do that as well. And Matt, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Is there a, is there a parting joke that we could wrap this one up with? Oh, we talked about my kids a lot. Um, so maybe, uh, uh, you know, Angelina, She's uh, she, we, she was our firstborn. So she was called Little Angel. Angelina means named after Little Angel. And uh, our second one, she's called Ariel, and uh, we named her after a font. (laughs) (laughs) It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Good on you, mate. Thanks, Simon. Bye. There we go, friends. I really enjoyed that conversation, and I hope you found it interesting too. Clint and I would love to hear from you. Flick us a message on social media or share your thoughts on your Instagram story. And if you know anybody with rheumatoid arthritis or another arthritic condition, I encourage you to share this episode so they can listen to Clint's story and hopefully be inspired to look more closely at their nutrition. You never know, it may just provide the hope that they've been looking for. All right, that's a wrap team. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. I'll see you in the next episode.